Episode 9 of Sip on This, the podcast that brings you into the wondrous experience of wine country, both here in the United States and abroad. I'm Roger Chung, and I'd like to introduce my brilliant co-host, Janae Gaither. Hey, Janae, how are you this evening? I am super fantastic, because this is a very special episode of Sip on This. It really is a special day indeed, because it's our very first podcast with an international winery, and that's so exciting. Today, we're going to Australia. Well, not literally, but we're actually podcasting here from San Francisco, but we're sitting here with two great people, Dean Hewitson, the proprietor and winemaker for Hewitson Winery from Australia. And we also have Joshua Blissett. He's the Northern California sales manager for Frederick Wildman and Sons, which is helping to distribute uh, the Hewitson wines all across the country here in the United States, as well as abroad, right? Just in the United States. Just in the United States. Well, welcome to uh, Sip on This, Dean and Joshua. Glad to have you here with us today. Welcome, Roger. Janae, welcome. Thank you. You know, our audience loves it when we get straight into the wines. Fantastic. Um, So uh, I've been in the wine industry for about um, 35 years now. That's including my studies. And um, I uh, studied, I did my undergraduate at the famous winemaking school in Australia called Roseworthy College. Okay. And um, and I uh, had a great three years there. Probably partied a little too hard, as uh, 18 to 21-year-old 20, uh, people tend to do. Um, and I worked for a fabulous winery in, uh, in the South Australia uh, called Petaluma. Probably didn't quite study hard enough the, during my undergraduate and uh, sent me to UC Davis to, to, do my, um, to do my master's. That was 90 to 92. And um, that was fabulous, just a, a great class. Um, and a bunch of great professors, by the way. And, um, you know, in that class were guys like Jean-Louis Chave and um, uh, Rodina Pam was there and uh, just, you know, Cody Dean and, uh, you know, Tony Ryan. It was just a really good bunch of people. Um, and uh, I was also encouraged. I went back to work in Australia. I was encouraged to go to Europe and work in France. I did a few vintages there um, and then started Hewitson up 21 years ago. Yeah. So what did you pour for us, right? We've, uh, we've, we're starting with the gunmetal Riesling uh, from Eden Valley. Eden Valley is the uh, valley alongside of the Barossa Valley, and together the Barossa Valley and the Eden Valley form the Barossa. Oh. So um, the Eden Valley is like the cool climate playground for Got the Barossa it. Valley winemakers. And describe for the audience how you manufacture this white wine. Okay. Well, I like to use the word make the wine. The most important thing is we want the, the wine to be expression of the vineyard and the season it's grown in. That's right. That's the key to great wine, and that's what we try to do. So this is a single vineyard wine. I came to the realization the best way we can make this Riesling is by hand picking it, um, and actually it goes through a, a champagne press method. Oh. So just a whole bunch of straight into the press, and then just gently squeezed, um, and um, without any additives, without any preservatives at all. Um, so the juice actually runs out of the press brown. So we're um, we're pre pre we're oxidizing all the precursors mm-hmm. for, for phenolic oxidation later, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's brown. Um, we we taste the juice coming out of the press, and when there's too too much phenolic and the acidity drops, we make the cut, the press cut, and so we've just got the free run that we're working with, making the wine, and the pressings are not used at all in this wine. Oh. Got it. 
really important to make a fine Riesling. Uh, then we, we simply settle, cold settle in stainless steel, and, um, and then initiate the fermentation and, um, and ferment. And after fermentation, all of those brown phenols have dropped out of solution, and we end up with this beautiful green wine mm-hmm. that will has lost all its... Um, we've pre-oxidised everything. There's nothing left to oxidise, so this will stay like this for the next 25 years. Got it. Wow. Yeah. Well, the f- first thing um, I notice, aside from the bouquet of this wine, because I get a lot of uh, mm. like green apple, like very mm. crisp green apple here, and um, a little bit of kiwi, green kiwi, not like the golden kiwis that you ha- guys have, but uh, a more tart flavor yep. here, um, which I love. I love that on the nose and on the palate. And then I also noticed that the name of this Riesling is called Gunmetal. Where does that come from? Does it come from the flinty flavors that I'm also getting or something else? It's a, well, it's a combination of that, Janae. Um, you're exactly right. Looking for a name for this wine. Um, it, it, uh, we were sitting around having lunch one day and it, it dawned on me, well, the, the, the rocks in this vineyard are Gunmetal Grey. There's um, this slate, there's some limestone. And, um, and there's some granite also. It, it varies also. Uh, it, the, the, it varies through the vineyard. And, um, and it is that, that steely minerality, um, that, that uh, gunmetal steely minerality and gunpowder dryness. Um, it's a great name. It describes the wine perfectly. Uh, you know, I, I drink a lot of American Rieslings, and, uh, and usually the Rieslings uh, from the east coast of the United States are a little bit more tingy. Uh, a little bit more steely, a little bit more metal. I'm trying to anticipate what I'm going to get out of this beautiful bouquet that I'm sniffing, but I'm ready to taste it. Have you tasted it already? I have. What do you get out of it? I I actually kind of get the same things I get on the nose. I get uh, that green apple, um, that kind of flinty mm. minerality, yeah. um, a crispness, which is that bright acidity that I absolutely love. Yeah. Um, and... Um, Maybe even a little bit of a... There's something... Hmm. A little bit of lime juice, maybe. Lime juice? That's what it is at the back end of it. And I was saying, going to say something that's almost vegetal, but it could be lime juice with cilantro. There you go. That's it. That, that's actually that's very good. Wow. You know, the, um, the key, I think, to, to this wine is that we, uh, we, we pick the grapes with the vision expectation that we're not adding anything mm-hmm. to it so there's no acid no sugar added in the winemaking process and when we, we start from that premise you, you start from that um, fundamentalism then um then you end up with this lovely purity of fruit absolutely um and i think that's the key to this wine it's it's got this beautiful purity ex- that's right pure expression and that is the i had a, a bit of nominal aphasia there guys that's kind of also what i wanted to say uh, I do think it is a very pure expression of fruit, and I think it's just really, really lovely. You don't taste any kind of it, it's just it's it's just all fruit. It's all uh, brightness um, with nothing uh, leaching in. It it almost it doesn't taste like there's any oak. Um, is it stainless steel fermented or yeah. stainless steel aged? Just stainless steel. Yeah, so you get that crisp, like beautiful, beautiful pure expression of fruit, which I just think is really, really lovely. In South Australia. We have an abundance of sunshine. Um, so we, we have the ripeness of the fruit, 
with lower acidity. Um, That's right. And so we don't have to leave any residual sugar in to balance that acidity. And I think that's the key. It's all, but in, in all cases with Riesling, whether it's Germany, America, or Australia, it's all about the sugar acid balance. That's right. This is very well balanced in terms of all, all, all textures and all flavors. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about the history and the origins of Hewitt's and Wines. And it dawned on me what we had to offer the world were these beautiful old pre-Phylloxera vineyards. Mm-hmm. Um, Phylloxera has never come to South Australia. So um, it hit the east coast of Australia in uh, the late 1800s, actually before it hit uh, the Champagne region in Mm. France. Uh, The South Australian government passed the Phylloxera Act in the 1890s, which forbade the transport of vine and vine materials into the state. And as a consequence, we've remained Phylloxera-free, and the Barossa Valley has the oldest vineyards in the world of... Cabernet Sauvignon, mm. Shiraz, mm-hmm. Grenache, mm-hmm. Uh, Semillon, Malbec, and Mourvedre, mm. Taro, that we'll be drinking. All later. beautiful varietals. Yeah. Wow. And that's what makes today's conversation and wine tasting so exciting because you have these wonderful, decadent, luscious old vines that have so much history to it that have... Uh, that bring a lot of texture and complexity to the wines that I can't wait to get into. Mm. And you're producing some of, uh, since we're here in California, you're producing some wines that are very familiar to Mm. Americans and Californians in particular, the Cabernet Sauvignon, the Syrah, which is widely grown uh, down in the Central Coast region of California. Um, you know, not so much Mouvedre, more and more Grenache here in, in California these days. Yeah. What do you, what do you have for us next? Uh, we've got the um, Miss Harry, Grenache Shiraz Mourvedre, um, with also a little bit of uh, Cinsa and Carignan. Mm. So this is old vine Grenache, uh, predominantly dry grown bush vine, you call head pruned. Mm-hmm. We call bush vine in, in Australia. Mm, thank um, you. And, uh, Average age of these vines is about 90 years old. Wow. So there's some 140-year-old Grenache in here. There's 120, 90, 60, and obviously some younger, younger vines to, to make that average up. Um, it's, it's terrific. It's just a terrific wine. It's called Miss Harry, uh, the nickname of my daughter Harriet. Oh, oh, fantastic. Uh, yeah, I'm just about to start my 20th vintage of Miss Harry, and uh, she's turning 20 later this year. So oh, that's that, fantastic. That was the nickname we gave her when she was a baby. We've just heard that, you know, the Barossa has some of the oldest vines in the world, which is noteworthy in itself. Um, and what else, what else should we know uh, about Australia? Even if our listeners have never heard of Australian wine and they don't know anything about it, what would you like to tell them? So, it, so it's, a very, it's a very big country and therefore a very diverse country, uh, just like America is too. That The Finger Lakes, for example, mm-hmm. have nothing in common really with um, Saloma Valley, for mm-hmm. example. So, um, so we're, we're the same there. Probably the, the biggest distinguishing feature is uh, our soils. Australia is, has some of, if not the oldest soils on the planet. Wow. Um, Soils we're talking about are you know, hundreds of millions of years old. Um, so in the Barossa Valley, we've got you know, 250 to you know, 200 to 300 million year old soils. In the Napa Valley there, mm-hmm. I'm led to believe about 20,000 years old. Mm-hmm. So the fertility of the Australian soils is much, much less. Uh, that, that's a really interesting, um, interesting uh, comparison, I think, to make. 
you, you mentioned some of the vines in this wine are 90 years old, but I, some of your vines are closer to 170 years old. Is that right? Yeah, the old garden Mourved, uh, the oldest, it's, it's believed to be the oldest Mourved in the world. So can we have a quick conversation about some of the attributes then of these old vines and what they bring out in the growing process and how that translates from the deep roots of these vines into the grapes? Obviously, uh, old vines have longer roots that go deeper into the soil. And so what kind of soil contact are they making down there? What kind of soils? Well, we've got a lot of different soil types uh, throughout Australia and also um, just within the Barossa Valley. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, they vary quite a bit. The oldest vineyards around the world tend to be on sand, even here in California, the Costa Contra old, old vine there is, is very sand-based. Um, likewise, the old garden is grown on um, six feet of sand over limestone. I think the sand is providing a dry, healthy environment for the wine. So the moisture, if it rains, it's running quickly through the soil, away from the foliage, away from the trunk. Obviously, moisture breeds um, disease. That's right. And, um, and therefore, these vines grown in sand remain drier and healthier and are able to live longer. Uh, I think another really important factor is um, the fact that we have ungrafted vines in Australia, yeah. uh, or in South Australia, in the Prosser Valley. We, we haven't needed to graft because, uh, because we have no phylloxera. Um, the graft is a weakness. Um, it provides a point of infection too, mm -hmm. a restriction. Um, and, um, and certainly that's why most vineyards are replanted. Most vineyards in, in the old world are replanted um, after about 70 years because they start to um, you know, lose their vigor and, uh, and don't reproduce. So most French, uh, certainly all the French uh, winemakers who I've met in my travels tend to keep an average age of about 35 years in their vineyards, um, mainly because they're grafted, I think. And so on top of, um, on, on top of the sand, and on top of the um, and on top of the graft or the lack of graft, um, we also have a position, as as you said, Roger, the deep roots, and that's really um, really uh, critical because the um, the vine is able to draw moisture from different levels as the season goes on. So as that top layer of uh, soil is drying out, there's another layer of roots to draw moisture from the next layer, and so on and so on and so on. Mm. And that's instructive because um, that means that these old vines have a, are able to withstand the vagaries of the temperatures and the drying periods, the really hot days, etc. Um, and even the wet days, they're much more capable of withstanding those vagaries of weather and therefore um, produce a more consistent fruit. You know, some young vines produce great wine. Old vines doesn't necessarily translate into greatness, it, it translates into consistency. Mm -hmm. And as a winemaker, once you're working with a consistent vineyard, you're able to harness its potential. Mm. And because you've got such great consistency uh, in your old vines, do you generally uh, produce more pure varietal wines or do you do more blends? Um, I like to, with, with a special vineyard like the old garden, I couldn't. I couldn't dare to uh, to blend it away. <laughs> Good, I'm a purist. Um, yeah, I couldn't yeah. dare to. However, um, with obviously Miss Harry being a Grenache-based wine, um, and and some old vines uh, with that, um, I I decided to go with the the, the blend with uh, Shiraz and Mourvet in the first instances, and then more more recently, and in Carignan and Sinso for complexity, um, and and natural acidity. 
Um, I decided to blend that more of a, a, a risk mitigation approach because um, Grenache actually is much more fickle from season to season. Mm -hmm. So yeah, let's, let's try this wine. Look, this is a beautiful color. It is more uh, plum color to me. How would you describe that, Janae? I would say it is a, it, actually it's kind of like a medium garnet, I would say. Um, it's funny, mm. it's, it's only 2014, but it actually is, it, it kind of looks like it's a little older. That's right. And it's not oxidation, I guess it's just, it's just the, the fact that it's, it's blended with the rest of the varietals, with the other varietals. So it's medium garnet, but it also has some beautiful kind of undertones of like brown and um, it's just gorgeous. A little, little orange. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And Joshua gave me a nice pour, but I haven't sipped it yet. But I see, Janae, you're already kind of down towards the end of the glass there. So you've been sipping while we were talking. So tell us what you're tasting. Very kind of pure, fresh fruit. That's dynamic. Wow. I, what's interesting about this wine is that I know that it comes from Australia, which is super, super sunny. Mm -hmm. And usually in hot climates, you get a very kind of sometimes overripe, super fruit forward, um, uh, almost Jack. very hot, jammy wine. This tastes like it's fairly low alcohol to me. I don't get that kind of jamminess. I get, um, I get again, we talked about balance. I get a beautiful balance of acidity and fruit um, and tannin structure. And it tastes like I get again. Like I said, it tastes like a low alcohol wine. It reminds me of something that would be from a cooler climate, um, something very European, um, which I think is very interesting. Yeah, it's a um, it's certainly a really complex wine. Um, talking about the alcohol level, um, just my experience is that for us, fourteen. Point zero seems to work, so that's our sort of target. Um, you know, high thirteens to, to very low fourteens, um, fourteen two maximum. Over that, the alcohol starts to not only poke out and affect the the aroma, but it also affects the tannins and really um, uh, hurts those tannins. We need need enough ripeness for that beautiful lush strawberry and, mm -hmm. and raspberry fruit. Um, you know, we pick this. Uh, all the parcels are picked individually. Not necessarily fermented um, individually. We're very happy to co-ferment if that if if they're being picked at similar times um, among varieties. That, that doesn't bother me at all. Um, what what we're really um, looking at too is introducing introducing a whole bunch. Mm -hmm. uh, so with this one has about twenty five percent whole bunch, mm. um, whole whole cluster. Mm -hmm. You say a uh, whole cluster in the in the ferment and the tannins is added to that tannin structure and that lovely brightness of fruit. Very complex. It's matured on uh, just in old French uh, barriques for about 12 months and importantly left on their leaves for those 12 months. And we actually stir those leaves. I was going to ask, yeah. The barrels sit on wheels and we rotate those barrels and, um, and re-submerge the leaves into the wine and we get that lovely creamy texture in this wine. Okay. We have dried herbs. Um, we have the creamy complexity, the spice, and the fruit all interwoven. And it's a, it's a really classy wine. Absolutely. And I also want to just kind of rewind a little bit. Um, 
earlier you were talking about phylloxera and you also mentioned that the soil is very sandy. So is it true that phylloxera cannot walk on sand, which is why Australia has been phylloxera free for the entire life cycle of its wine growing? Well, um, phylloxera, yeah, it, it apparently hates sand and phylloxera lives underground, it lives on the roots. It's a louse that lives on the roots underground. And it can't make its way through sandy soils. I guess the, 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 the particles of the soil are too far away for it to cling onto or whatever it is. Um, but it can through other types of soil types. But it, we, we aren't all sand in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, it's only pockets of sand. But South Australia, actually, which is the phylloxera-free part of Australia, mm -hmm. South Australia is actually pretty well surrounded by sandy deserts. Okay. So it would be extremely unlikely for a little phylloxera louse to, to migrate through the soil to South Australia. Mm -hmm. It would have to be brought in by on, on, on uh, trucks or tyres or, or, or cuttings brought in, you know, vine material. So we have a very strict policy, um, very strict regime. Um, vehicles are washed um, mm -hmm. from, if they're travelling interstate uh, from vineyard to vineyard, uh, they're, they're washed in, in, their, uh, in their own state and, um, and not brought in. Even, even some people, and when we have guests, visitors to the old garden vineyard, you'll put on little hospital shoes. Hmm. Um, because you can bring it in, obviously, on, on mud, on a shoe. Absolutely. And for our audience, if you guys don't know what phylloxera is, they're, it's a root louse. Uh, they're like little lice um, or little aphids, and they l literally suck the nutrients from vines. And so they wiped out France's crops back in the 1800s. They actually hit Napa, like in the late 1980s, early 1990s. Um, so when we talk about phylloxera, we're just talking about uh, these little aphid dudes who um, just have a fill day, get it, <laughs> on the vines. So that's what we're talking about. The next wine we're going to be pouring is the Ned and Henry's 2015 Shiraz. Um, and this is perfect because we can talk about uh, the qualities of Shiraz. And a lot of you guys probably have heard of Shiraz, but you've also heard of Syrah. And you probably are wondering the difference and why some people call it Syrah and why Australia calls it Shiraz. Can you give us insight onto this, into this, um, Dean? Yeah, Janae, it's well, well known that uh, Australia referred to this variety as Shiraz um, and, uh, and the rest of the world call it Syrah um, and uh, for a long time um, you know the, the Aussies thought we were right um, because the the myth was that it uh, the variety originated from Persia and the, the town of Shiraz in Persia but actually it was my university pre professor at UC Davis Carol Meredith who uh, proved that the uh, the, the Syrah the Mughal Shiraz was a, a spontaneous um, uh, love affair on the Hill of Hermitage between two varieties mm -hmm. um, and it was actually born on the Hill of Hermitage in about what well, I think it was around 1100. So um, so we were we were wrong in Australia and uh, it was a, it was a good story while it lasted <laughs> um, and I guess somewhere along the line there was a, a simple misspelling and uh, I mean not everyone could read and write so well back then and um, and the, this variety was brought to Australia in the Busby collection James Busby is a famous um, person in the Australian wine industry, um, went to Europe um, and also um, 
I think I touched on South Africa, and he brought back his collection of Sydney in 1834. Earlier you mentioned that it's a combination of two varietals. Do you recall what those two varietals are? Yeah, I do actually. And funnily enough, one's a white and one's a red. So Mondeuse of Blanche and, uh, being the white and uh, Duriza. Got it. Oh, Fantastic. You know, I love that. Syrah, as we've talked about in previous episodes of Sip on This, you guys know that it's my favorite varietal. Now, I actually did that uh, blind tasting with Ed Lee earlier in episode uh, two or three, uh, where I brought a Syrah and had him try to uh, identify it. Mm-hmm. And, and as I mentioned, Syrahs from the Central Coast are, are my favorite because it's the volcanic soil, very uh, fruit forward, very jammy flavor. So I'm so excited to try this Australian Shiraz and see and compare it with uh, what my flavor expectations are. Um, Joshua, I want to bring you into this because you took a sip of it and you looked at me and you said, I love it, or you mouth in, in, in air wine. words, you said, I love this wine. I do, I do. You've already tasted it. You've been drinking it all day. What do you get out of this? Yeah, it's, um... So I'm like you, Roger. I really love Syrah a whole lot um, from lots of different areas in the world. I like its um, animal character. I oh. like that it's earthy. I, it, it just, it, it feels and smells like winter to me a whole lot of times. Like I just, I, I love the, the herbaceousness of it. Um, I get a lot of, um, a lot of black fruits. I get blue fruits in this as well. Um, I get a lot of herbs here. Mm-hmm. Oh. Uh, Garig. Hmm. Um, it's one of those descriptions you hear from time to time. What is garrigue? It's the uh, wild herbs that grow in the south of France. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, thyme and uh, dried oregano and that type of stuff. That's right, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh my gosh, I put my nose in this glass. What a wondrous bouquet this thing is. Wow, it's dynamic. Um, I had an email uh, sent to me about six months ago from Wine Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, Wine Australia are currently in the process of uh, sensory fingerprinting Shiraz across the nation. So looking at all the Shiraz made in a particular region and working out what character, what sensory character is that region and then mapping this and, uh, and finding the differences. And their email simply said that uh, they'd selected through rigorous sensory analysis and statistical analysis that um, Ned and Henry's Shiraz was chosen as benchmark Barossa Valley. Is flavor. that right? That's fantastic. Wow. Congratulations. So tasting yeah, a I benchmark did. wine here. Yeah, that's oh, it. this is awesome. That's it. It's, um, it's fabulous. The dark that's fruits, great. the red and black fruits. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I think um, someone alluded to that little blackberry note. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's gorgeous. And is this 100% Shiraz? 100% Shiraz, all grown at about 250 meters elevation. Um, halfway up the eastern side of the Barossa Valley on and I guess this is why it, it um, has those classic flavours because it's grown on the classic soils of the Barossa Valley which incidentally isn't sand the classic soil of the Barossa Valley is the Terra Rossa about 12 inches of Terra Rossa the red iron oxidised millions of years old red soil over clay and then over limestone. Well, you've mentioned classic flavors. I haven't even taken my nose out of the glass yet because it's just a wondrous bouquet. Boy, oh boy. It's got that full full effect of that Syrah, Shiraz aroma, right? And and the color matches what we should expect out of a, uh, out of a Shiraz. How would you describe that, Janae? 
Uh, it's very dark, almost inky, mm -hmm. um, and like a deep, deep, deep garnet, uh, burgundy almost, um, going mm. to purple or going to uh, a, like a little bit of a lighter garnet on the outer edge. And um, it's a beautiful color. It's really, really, really interesting. A lot of layers here. Uh, I get some menthol actually. Yes. Initially, what I got when I when I um when I put my nose in it, which is really kind of cool to get, or or some uh, a little bit of eucalyptus and some herby notes that uh, Joshua mentioned earlier, and then those black and blue fruits, and it's really lovely. What I expect out of a Syrah from California is very fruit forward, jammy grape, like almost uh, a peanut butter and jelly type of grape flavor, which hits, which sings a song to my heart. This is delicious though, because it's kind of the opposite effect for me where I get the jamminess on the, on the second effect. My first impression of it brings out those herbal notes that Joshua was mentioning earlier. Yeah, yeah wonderfully fresh mm -hmm. and uh, yet lovely uh, plush ripeness of fruit. That's right. There's a beautiful acidity running through it. Yeah. And I think that's very much a common thread with all of these wines that we've tasted. Uh, that that freshness and that bright acidity. And that purity. Um, and very pure expressions of fruit. And it is, it's a very consistent throughout everything we've tasted. You know, I, I, I have Syrah parties at my house. And I right. do, I do, I do. And I have been invited. <laughs> naked Syrah Naked Syrah parties. Yeah. Uh, that's a good idea. I'm going to bring that up. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I have Syrah parties at my house and, and I always uh, like to have uh, older uh, Syrahs and I like to bring Syrahs from different regions, whether they're from Central Coast. The Sonoma Coast, which I believe is a lot lighter than Central Coast Syrahs. Uh, the wines, uh, the Syrahs from um, the Pacific Northwest, Washington State, Oregon, have a lighter, uh, lighter, tingy, lighter, more tingy effect. This one, I think, has got some great body to it. I really do. I think it's got a great balance. It, it drinks like a, even though it's only a 2014 Syrah or a 2015 Shiraz, it tastes like it's it's been aged for maybe five seven years. It's got some depth and body to it. The uh, the maturation period is about sixteen months in what I like to call freshly seasoned oak. So not new barrels, but um, two, three, and four year old barrels. So still give, giving some oak character and some strength to the mm -hmm. tannin. Um, it helps gives it with some of that body that I'm tasting. And it helps build because that all polymerizes and, and well, everything polymerizes together and, and builds that, that body. Wow. This is really Great good. Great body for a naked Syrah party. So that kind of makes sense. Oh, okay. This is where you want to go. Sure. All I works out. I, I kind of don't want to move on from this. I just kind of want to savor from this. But, but as we get into your uh, next two wines, and I'm very excited to buy it. Bring us to your place. Take the audience to Australia, and if we were to visit your winery, what will we see, what will we do? We have glorious uh, gum trees, uh, the, the, the native um, eucalypts, uh, 
which are the, the river gums, which are giant trees that are well over 100 years old, probably two, 300 years old, um, along the riverbank. And, um, and uh, we have a beautiful position with glorious sunsets. And um, actually the winery and vineyard sit on what's called, referred to as the Golden Mile, um, which is just, you know, some of it, I talked about the, um, the terrorossa over the clay, over limestone, all this stretch of land um, runs on, on a flat and it, um, it is truly wonderful for grapes. Um, the, the, the actual locality is called Dorian, which is ancient Greek meaning gift. Mm. And I think that probably gives you some idea of, um, you know, the early settlers coming to this stretch of land and thinking, wow, we've just been given this gift. So, wow. Sounds beautiful. Mm. The next two wines are the Mouvedre. Yes. Super we, excited about it. Because the first one we're trying in this bracket uh, is a baby bush Mouvedre. Uh, these are 21-year-old vines. Mm. I took cuttings... Um, 21 years ago from the old garden vineyard, the 1853 planting. Um, and so we have a, here we have the, the babies from the old garden, the old garden being the mother, and the baby bush being the babies of, of this, with the, the same DNA, yet 145 years in age difference. Wow, mm. wow. Very cool. So a mother-daughter relationship. I, see. I love that. And we don't talk much about Mouvedres uh, in, in, in our podcast so far because it's not a common grape uh, that is grown here in California. Uh, it is used more in a, more of a blending it's grape. It's a blending grape, mostly. Uh, here. But, so tell us what the Mouvedre grape is. It has a lot of names. It does indeed. <laughs> it, like, it does. It, it's one of the varieties with, with you know, the most amount of synonyms, uh, mm -hmm. but the, the three most common are Mourvedre, Monastrel, mm -hmm. and Matara. And in fact, they all originate from Spain. The grape originates from Spain. Um, and the first written word uh, for this variety was Monastrel. And that's not too surprising when you think about it because it was the grapes around the monastery, Monastrel, mm -hmm. and the monks were the ones who could write mm -hmm. <laughs> back then. So, um, and of course, uh, Motaro and Morvedra uh, come about slightly differently. Um, they're the villages where the grapes came from. Just like we call Bordeaux Reds, Bordeaux, they That's came right. from the port of Bordeaux. Well, there's a town um, on the coast, Motaro, and actually there was a town, well, there still is a town, but in the 1860s, it underwent a name change from Morvedrio to Siganto. Hmm. So all Spanish derived, and in fact, Mourvedre being the French word for it, they must have got their cuttings originally from the town of Mourvedre. <laughs> very interesting. I'm, I'm very excited about these last two wines because I love um, when I get to taste blending grapes at 100%. Um, because they are the, the, the oft-forgotten um, forgotten workhorses essentially yeah. of of these magnificent blends and when i yeah. get to taste them at 100% you kind of you kind of really get to understand uh, what a blending grape does to the overall sapage of the wine which i think is fascinating yes it is great and i guess we also should understand the, the role that Mulvedra played in these blends um, originally and um, if we look at 
a lot of these blends, they were, they were co-planted, they were field planted together. Um, and of course, when you're picking a vineyard and it's consisting of different varieties, you, you're trying to pick the vineyard based on the, on, on, the, on the most predominant variety. And in the south of France, for example, that is Grenache. We know that there's more Grenache than Syrah and, 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 and Mourvedre also. Um, and so the vineyards were picked on how ripe is the Grenache, not how ripe the Mourvedre is. Mm. And so the Mourvedre was mm. probably always picked a little bit underripe. It was, um, it, it's, um, it's a later ripening grape and it, it therefore got, a, got a, um, a reputation as being really quite hard and tannic. But of course, when it's picked slightly underripe, it, it, it is harder and tan more tannic. And so it's adding that to the blend. That's right. Where here we're letting it fully ripen. Mm-hmm. Those tannins are softening, the acidity's dropped. We have this lush, beautiful, dark cherry, spicy, and, and almost root beer like flavours and mm-hmm. aromas. And um, where we're seeing the expression of the fully ripe variety. And that's really exciting because this, this is a beautiful wine. Absolutely. Mm. What's very interesting that you just mentioned tannin. We've tasted through four, three red wines thus far, and we have very rarely mentioned the word tannin. That's right. Not which yet. is so interesting with red wine, especially with uh, these varietals that we have that are uh, uh, things like Shiraz and, and Mouved, um, which have like thicker skins and you know would, would hold more tannin. And we have not talked about tannin because these wines are just so very, very luscious and, 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 and fresh and, and fruity. And uh, tannins are almost like non-existent. They're silky, they're soft, they're, it's just easy drinking. And I find that very interesting when we're talking about these red wines. The um, balance is the key. And, and that was one of the, uh, the great things I got taught as a, as a young 22-year-old when I first started out. I mentioned I worked for this great winery with great people around me with magnificent tutors. Um, and when I got sent to France, again, I, you know, I was introduced to some great winemakers. And, and it was all about, always, always about balance. And, um, and if you pick it at ripeness, and you make the wine with balance, then nothing really does poke out, and that's it's critical. The, the barrel maturation regime that we've seen on these wines too is is um, you know it's underhanded, it's it's understated, it's not over the top. Um, you know, as I mentioned, it's freshly seasoned. There's, se- there's seasoned oak in there, uh, two, three, four-year-old barrels, and again we have that that polymerization coming together, and that softens the wine out. Um, this is 15 also that we've had the benefit of that this wine sitting in, in bottle for a year and a half and that's and that's great too. Often we rush into drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, today's modern world of, you know, getting it out there quickly, putting it on the shelf and of course we buy it and we drink it within 24 hours. It's that's lovely right. to just have, have drink these wines that have the benefit of a little bit of maturation time to settle and mature. Makes a big difference. So Janae... I can't wait to taste this. I've seen you've already uh, sampled it. Tell me what you're pulling out of it. It was very good. What, I, what I'm pulling out from here. There's a lovely raspberry yes. um, red, red fruit to this too. Yes, and I think you might have mentioned uh, sarsaparilla 
or yes. root, root beer. Yeah. So I, I, I kind of agree with that because I do get a, a Coca-Cola kind of flavor that I just really, really love. But it, it's, these wines almost, they, they're, they're hard to define because mm. they're so just, just very lovely, very soft and, and well integrated. Um, so it, it, it's just all about a balance. That's another thread that's been running through this entire podcast. It's all about balance. So you don't have to pick out one thing or the other because it's all just completely integrated together in a seamless way. The, um, the, the time on lees, the fact that these are sitting in barrel and that, that, that gentle stirring that we give the wine, and, and I, I don't underestimate the effect that that lees has on the texture and the, the texture of these wines. The, the tannins aren't poking out. There's an extra dimension. It's softer. There's texture. It's, it's a feeling to it. Yeah. It's really important. Well, and this is a nice, uh, full, more full-bodied wine, and, I, and you were talking about texture. I definitely get a lovely layer of a hint of chalkiness, but not that dominant chalkiness uh, to this wine. So, is that from your soil types? Yeah, well, there's a there's a uh, there's well, it's more than a debate. I think that the research has recently been done that actually soil it doesn't necessarily impart a flavour to the wine, but of course, the the type of soil that the wine is growing the vines are growing in will determine a flavour uh-huh. that, that the vine is providing. So um, we don't actually taste chalkiness, so we don't actually taste flint. Hmm. But we're, we're um, we might be, but it's not directly coming from the soil. Sure, right. Our brain's saying yes, we're tasting that, but it's not really coming from the soil. Yeah. Yes. We should all have a party because you I, dinner party. Yeah, for sure. Naked Saran dinner party. Naked Saran uh, dinner party. It has to happen. But now that you mentioned that, Joshua, the the the, 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 the not the naked party, but the but uh, what kind of podcast is this? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think you know, you, you, I, I think a nice coffee rub steak that the tartness would break through that kind of deep uh, chocolate flavor of a coffee. Mm-hmm. This would actually be a nice, very nice compliment to. Dark chocolate, I would think, yeah. Well, you guys have hit on some some terms, some descriptive terms um, that I, I use all the time to describe more vet, but actually more so the old guard. Um, and so mm. I guess I guess when we move into that wine, you're going to see all of those things in spades. Yeah. Which is... Um, keep in mind, these are the 20-year-old vines. And these right. are just 20 years old. So- While we were talking... Dean, we filled your glass. <laughs> <laughs> but we're ready to talk about, you were just talking about the life cycle, the cycle of life. <laughs> Are, we're about to get into some of your really old vines. Dun, dun, dun. Right. Well, we, yeah, we've, we've gone 10 year old to 20. Yeah. And now we're, we're going to 165. Oh, Lord. I can't I'm wait. I'm so excited. So, you know, before we talk about that, um, so I like to tell people that um, you, you just use the metaphor of, uh, of the life cycle of a vineyard or a vine um, going through, you know, being in its nascent stages and then going through puberty of sorts where it's figuring itself out and then becoming a 20 year old and like 
having your crap together, right? So I also like to tell people that. Um, Do you get your crap together when you're in when you're in your twenties? Not really, but for the sake of argument. Um, <laughs> took me into my 30s but like for the sake of argument um when we're taught we're gonna be drinking something from you said 160 year old vines or, or older and we should talk about like how i like to tell people that vines are kind of like people in that you know as they get older they get wider mm -hmm. <laughs> right mm -hmm. so i can just imagine these super gnarled 160 something year old vines that are probably super super large and thick and like gnarled and they must look so cool well actually they um they're incredibly fragile mm. and um and i guess you know going back to humans i think yeah sure we get to a stage but then we become fragile yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, what a great analogy yeah, yeah and um and these are fragile so um you know they're incredible there's there's you know half pieces of trunk and and um, quarter pieces of trunk, you know, clinging on. And then, you know, a, a sort of a, a branch on the ground that then has spunk to life again. And, and um, just a really beautiful uh, spiritual place to be, to tell you the truth. Cool. There's um, amongst the vines uh, in the vineyard where a vine has died, we haven't replanted. So every vine is 165 years. Wow. That's fantastic. 166-ish, year. Yeah. So it's lovely that you could perform year over year a consistent wine that people can rely upon, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And one of the most beautiful experiences I've had is uh, lining up this, um, this, the vintages, the, mm -hmm. the vertical of these vintages. I love that. From 98 through to 12. Um, I'm coming down to Australia just to and, do that with you. And when, when you're not interfering at all because these vines don't get any irrigation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just purely what the rain, what the, what the, the it delivers uh, from the sky, um, and um, and you actually see the season in the glass right. because it's mm. one of the last vineyards picked in the Brosser Valley. So you see the spring and all of the summer into autumn mm. in the glass. Mm -hmm. It's extraordinary. Mm -hmm. No one's ever described it like that before. The seasons in the glass. Yeah. That's just, uh, that's so harmonious. Dean's a poet throughout yeah. this entire podcast. He's I been a poet. It. This has been great. God, it's lovely. <laughs> yeah. So I want to take this moment because it's so beautiful and we have such a unique wine here with us today. Some 160 plus vines. Let's take a moment to sniff it and, and describe the bouquet mm. and let's just savor this moment, right? Let's just do that. Absolutely. Oh. I get a lot of jamminess, but I get a lot of um, dried fruits with this thing in, in the bouquet. Dried fruits and a Christmas cake. Fig Whoa. A fig, uh, yes. Figgy pudding? Yeah, figgy pudding. <laughs> so we have that, I, you know, do you mm -hmm. call it that? And, um, and it is, it's exactly that. It's, it's almost as if the, um, the, uh, it's glazed. It's glass. I was just about to say, like a demi gloss of some sort. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and I, I know where this is coming from because yeah. some of these vines, they don't all, they're not homogenous as a vineyard. Some are much, um, you know, have, have less leaves on, lose their leaves earlier. They're not as strong as, mm -hmm. as the neighbor vine. And, um, and so, with the leaves not shading the fruit, mm. they, they, some of these um, berries get completely cindered, burnt. 
Dean, keep talking because I'm going to fall in love with you. Just keep talking <laughs> while I... And I think what we're smelling is that, that sugar from the berry being seared onto the skin. Mm. And, um, and this is all just naturally occurring in the vineyard. And you talked about the philosophy is this is exactly what we want to see. Mm-hmm. People say, do you thin? Do you pick at different times? No, I don't. I want that vineyard to be the, this wine to be the expression of this vineyard in that season. Mm. My mouth um, is just watering listening to this, sniffing it, and I can't wait to taste it. On the nose with this wine, I get a lot of those baking spices. I get like cinnamon, I get nutmeg, I get cardamom, I get a little anise, but I also get, um, as you said, a glaze. So the sensation that I'm getting is this kind of caramelized, um, stewed fruit that I often like to use, um, characteristic, and a little bit of potpourri, which I like too, that dried fruit character. And you mentioned coffee and mocha and chocolate in the in yep. the baby bush, and I said you'll see it in spades here. And Coca Cola, mm. dark bit yep. of chocolate. Yep. And you mentioned peach in baby bush. Mm-hmm. I get orange peel. Oh, do you? Okay. Citrus orange peel. Uh, Dean, you just pulled out your phone and you're going to show some beautiful pictures. Well, I know I know the audience can't see this. Um, yeah, it, it's quite amazing. And as I said, a, a really spiritual place. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I want to go. Wow. No, Dean just pulled out a picture of the vines. Look at that. Look at the growth, thickness, <laughs> depth, the width of that. The it, You could tell that that is aged. Uh, and look at the plushness of those grapes. I just wish your audience could see the pure excitement. <laughs> Face. I'm glad you say that. You know, I've had to have folks describe Janae's reactions on yeah. the podcast. She's like, she's cracking up. She's got giddiness in yeah. because she's happy, but she's appreciating the, the, the complexity yet beauty of this picture. It's so cool. We're seeing thick, old, uh, wide trunks of the vines with very large uh, grape leaves. And a beautiful color of a, 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 wonder, a wonderful sunlit uh, but bright purple freshness of these grapes. And what comes out, what pops out at me with these grapes is these are large grapes. It's interesting because this is a, a, a head-trained vine, but I've never seen head-trained vines that actually look like this. They almost look like they're split. Janae, uh... We've described the the bouquet already. What are you pulling out of this beautiful bouquet, this beautiful wine? Acid, sugar, tannin profile, perfectly in balance to age for a very long time. And very lovely to drink. Again, that smooth, silky tannin profile that just makes it nice and soft and round and elegant in your mouth. Um, but you can also tell that it has some complexity and it's going to be able to age for a very long time. Yeah, for, for a uh, 2013 wine, this uh, drinks like it's uh, been on the shelf for maybe 10, 15 years already. It's got that kind of like great maturity to it, and that's probably because of the age of the vines, right? Uh, but then uh, I get a very pure, bright... Uh, Bing cherry flavor to it at the at the first. That's my first impression. But as you mentioned, Janae, my second impression when it when it coats over the the back of my tongue and the rear of my mouth into the throat, I get some of those savory characteristics of that uh, olive tapenade. 
Uh, Dean, you have given us so much history today, and it has been the most interesting podcast that we've done because you've given us so much background um, and context to wine in general. And today you took us to a place on the opposite side of the world, uh, but uh, you made it so magical for all of us today, and we want to go and visit you and spend a day with you. And you gave us so much education, and this podcast is so much about making wine accessible and education, and you gave us so much education. This has just been most beautiful, beautiful stories. Like I said, you're a poet, so. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Shannon. Thanks, Roger. And please let your audience know that they're very welcome at our place anytime. Yeah. Well, Joshua, coming back into this conversation, how does our podcast audience get these wines? These amazing wines. Yeah, so there's there's a few ways to get them. I mean, I you know I work here in Northern California, so I can tell you exactly where to get them in Northern California. If you happen to be in Northern California, Rayleigh's Markets carries fruits and wines. If you're shopping in any other part of the United States or maybe internationally, Wine.com is a great place to access. Great. Um, and then generally, you a lot of the tasting notes, a lot of the descriptors. I heard the word fresh a lot through the day, and it's and a word pure. that we use. And I don't think either one of us prompted that terminology, but the wines overall are fresh, they're vibrant, and they're a real pleasure to drink. Mm-hmm. Um, look, let's be frank. For people who think that they don't like Australian wine, they haven't had these wines. That's right. They That's had so wines true. Made in this style, these wines are really attractive to sommeliers across the country, and that's where we see most of our placements are in SOM-driven, restaurants with SOM-driven wine lists. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I kind of don't want to end this episode because I just kind of want to continue the conversation because yeah, it's been such too. a lovely day. But for our audience, we do have to end it, and you can learn more about Hewittson Wines as, as uh, Joshua told us, uh, go to wine.com if you want to get it across the country. And if you want to actually take your place, whether it's virtually uh, or physically to Hewitson, you could uh, start by going to hewitson.com.au and then you can listen to Sip on This and subscribe to our podcast. We're on Apple, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and, or get us anywhere where you get your podcasts. And you can see pictures from today's episode at siponthis.org and ask questions that we'll answer on a future episode. Until next time, guys, live peacefully, productively, and deliciously. Cheers. 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 Thanks, guys. Thank oh, my you. God. Thank you. Guys. Why does this have to end? It's been a it real, was so good. It's been a real great conversation. This was so fun. Like, yeah. yeah.